suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today, we produce and present Memento Number 8, The Arbitrariness of Kings, Xerxes Part 5. And there's no sense wasting time. We take up the story where we left off in our last episode. It's 480 BCs, and Xerxes, a man, a king whom prided himself on being of even temperament, of cool demeanor. He had just ordered two men beheaded for failing to measure up, to have done their jobs insufficiently, and to have disappointed the king. A capital offense, despite their breakdown having occurred in the midst of tornadic winds which had turned the Dardanelles into a broiling sea. Still, one must recognize it is, it is best never to disappoint a despot. Disappointment equates to death. In the Middle East, crucifixion and impalement meant nothing. And it meant pronounced levels and duration, extended duration of unimaginable prolonged suffering. And then there's the sword. Pray for the sword. Miscreants can only hope. Believers pray to their gods. And sure enough, Xerxes announced somebody had to die. The king assigned the task of beheading the two ill-fated men, those architects and engineers. And this is, this is the most ominous part. He specified the order be carried out by the men to whom had previously been assigned the task of lopping off people's heads. I mean, doesn't the formation of such a unit in advance, you know, to, a, to have established a squadron of soldiers whose duty requires that they be ready to assemble on a moment's notice upon the king's orders for the express purposes of chopping people's heads off. Doesn't this fact alone make it appear that Xerxes was not a man of calm demeanor? He was less than cool-headed, so to speak. Was himself not level-headed. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, isn't this evidence of a certain level of capriciousness on the part of the king of kings? Uh, doesn't it seem a tad bit arbitrary to you, I ask? You know, I must share, share with you this. You know, during a 2018 trip to Istanbul, I had a young Turk guide uh, outside the Topkapi Palace, and he had pointed out a large square uh, stone block where over the centuries all sorts of people had been beheaded for various and sundry, arbitrary even, reasons by sultans and other men in authority who bore and were bearing swords. And, and my guide remarked to me, Americans always seem to be so horrified whenever he tells them about 
the circumstances of some historical beheading at some location in the city of Istanbul. And, you know, my guide couldn't wrap his head around this. He was totally perplexed by American thinking. I mean, he simply couldn't understand the queasiness beheading produced in American citizens, given it was such a quick and painless way to be put out of one's misery. There existed, and history was replete with so many other perverse and worse ways to exit this world, he said. And of course, he was right about this. He said he even prayed, though he was non-observant, that if his end was near, he'd choose beheading. He would. He made a a, a, a rather compelling case, it seemed to me. You know, given the Khashoggi bone saw alternative just the next year, I think he had a valid argument. There were indeed far wet, worse ways to exit stage left than to suffer a mere beheading. And, and, and let's not forget our own heritage. You know, British, British love for all sorts of terrifying ways to send people to face their maker. You know, drawing and courting, quartering people was especially popular with British crowds who would show up en masse for this show despite its horrific nature. I mean, drawing and quartering? How about ordering the breaking of people on the rack and wheel in the Tower of London? This was a very special uh, moment for British kings and queens. And the English had no qualms about uh, burning France's delusional and demented Joan of Arc, a young teenager, burning burning her at the stake in ruin in 1431. No, they did not. And what what about the Queen of England, Mary I? I mean, she was a religious fanatic and and bloodthirsty lunatic member of the royal family. You wouldn't want to run afoul of her. She was no Prince Charles. You know, and dur- during her five-year reign, she had more than 500 religious dissidents burnt at the stake. But, you know, after having a, a father, you know, like King Henry VIII, well, he had set a high bar for atrocity, what with his having ordered, you know, so many to hideous deaths and then having their heads spiked on London Bridge. And, and then, of course, uh, how could I ever forget the enigmatic and most gruesome death, the tragic demise of King Edward II in 1327 when he was trussed up like a leg of lamb and, and, and had a red-hot poker rather rudely shoved up his anus. Whoa, yowzer, what a shock that, that must have been for the poor King Edward II, and I'll bet he never saw that coming. Geez, the hot poker thing. You know, I mean, this is way, way worse than the CIA's waterboarding KSM 183 times at that black site in Poland in 2003, I assure you. And and we Americans are so up in arms debating, you know, about the cruelty of putting school shooters to death by lethal injection post their being anesthetized. Hmm. In any way. In any event, let's go, let's go back to 480 BC. It did appear, amongst other things, that Xerxes had been a bit arbitrary in dispatching the architects and engineers of the pontoon bridge of boats to their death. No, no matter the ferocity of the storm, the bridge had failed, so off with their heads. 
you know, the mad emperor of Rome, Caligula, declared that he was God. Well, according to Keith Richards, Mick Jagger thought he was God for about 10 years. And, and according to Keith, there existed no evidence that he wasn't. But Xerxes, he didn't have to declare himself God. He just acted as if he were God. And he appointed a new team of architects and engineers to begin that bridge construction project all over again. And it is not recorded, at least by any historian I am aware of, the, the degree to which these newly appointed architects and engineers were motivated to do good work, having just witnessed the, the decapitation of the former designers of the failed bridge works. All we do know for sure is that the new pontoon bridge construction project did not fail. So there's that. And then there's this. As, as Xerxes and his forces awaited completion of the new pontoon bridge of boats over the Dardanelles, a wealthy local, local man uh, in Lydia named Pythias, he offered his entire net worth, estimated something like 3.9 thousand talents, just an unimaginable sum of wealth to, to anyone but the king of kings, and agreed to host the king's extravagant nightly feast for more than a week. I mean, this is a tremendous expense. Remember, the king was joined at table each night by 15,000 members of his, you know, key members of his staff, you know, generals, high-ranking army officers, and key members of his royal court and, and other staffers each night at dinner. It's a rather large event, I would say, with an open bar. You know, I, I, I think weddings with 200 guests in attendance that are, are a big deal. Then multiply this by 75 and host an event like this every night for a week or more, and one can see this is a big deal. The pressure on the host and his staff must, be, have, must have been unbelievable. And the exhaustion afterwards had to be totally complete. Incredible. You know, apparently Xerxes um, was very friendly towards Pythias, his host, and appreciated his efforts on behalf of the king. And Xerxes appreciated and thanked but declined Pythias's offer of all his money to the king for the war effort. And the, the one thing Xerxes did not lack definitely in this war was wealth. He had all the money he needed to fund the expedition. So he po politely declined Pythias's generous offer. And in fact, Xerxes actually gave Pythias, in a sign of his appreciation for all his efforts, something like a hundred talents so that he could round off his net worth at an even 4,000 talents. Hmm. Anyway, Pythias, uh-oh, he overplayed his hand. After a week of hosting the king, feasting with, and at the table of the king, Pythias, perhaps overestimating the intimacy the intimacy he'd established with a king, no less the king of kings, inquired of the king if he might ask just one small favor, just a small favor. You know, and someone, sometimes, you know, one just has to understand the risk of attempting to fly too close to the sun. It's dangerous. And Xerxes assented to listen to Pythias. Well, it was the case um, Pythias explained that he had five sons, 
all of whom were committed to Xerxes' gigantic war machine that was headed off to destroy, destroy Greece. You know, that multi-hundred thousand man army Xerxes had assembled that now awaited to cross that newly constructed bridge works, in that group, in that army, were five sons of his. And might the king, with all his grace, in all his grace, possibly, possibly find a way as a personal favor to Pythias to spare to order an exemption from the military campaign, the service of his eldest son, um, for the express purposes of making sure that his eldest son might both assume Pythias' place in the family line of succession and that his eldest son then be available to, to care for Pythias in his elder years. Would the king grant this one small favor? Might the king be so kind, so gracious, so generous as to grant his host this one single itty-bitty request, this one personal favor? No, he would not. And his refusal was not the worst of it. Not by a long shot. The infuriated king was just getting started. The effrontery and insult showed the king's mission as demonstrated by Pythias' request could not be ignored. Pythias would at that very moment experience suffering of the most cruel nature. Later identified by the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer when he had written that suffering by nature or chance never seemed so painful and you know, as the suffering inflicted on us by the arbitrary will of another. And this has been our main point. Now, to reasonable people, perhaps, you know, maybe people like y you and me, it may seem that this matter of the seeking of a personal favor by Pythias of the king could and would be resolved with a simple yes or no response by the king of kings. I mean, this seems perfectly reasonable. But when one is dealing with the arbitrariness of kings, especially so when it's the king of kings, well then, there apparently exists the exercise of a potential third option, a retreat to the surprising, always dramatic and traumatic nuclear option that no one present at that campsite before the Hellespont on that day could ever possibly have seen coming. His answer was not Blowing in the wind, if you get my drift. No, it was not. The entire history of man has been the gradual realization that events do not happen in an arbitrary manner, but reflect a certain, you know, underlying order which may or may not be divinely inspired, but which definitely will appear arbitrary when they are ordered so by a king. And so, Xerxes prepared to lead his expeditionary force across that pontoon bridge of boats. But before he did, he ordered that Pythias' eldest son be brought forward and presented to him the king of kings. And so ordered, Pythias' eldest son was removed from the, the troops that had been gathered and presented to the king. And in front of Pythias and those assembled troops, Xerxes ordered those men whose task it was to carry out such orders as given by the king, that Pythias' son at that very moment be cut in half 
with the two severed parts of his torso to be placed on display on either side of the entryway to that pontoon bridge, such that each soldier who would set foot on the bridge, he was about to pass, he was about to pass by the severed remains of a man whose family had had the audacity to so much as challenge and thereby so disrespect and offend the king of kings and his mission. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I do believe it to be true, beyond, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that ordering of a man, that he be severed in two, for the reasons that I've just enumerated, is more than unreasonable. It's a bit beyond overkill, no pun intended. Wouldn't you agree? And it confirms, does it not, albeit in the most extreme form of evidence imaginable, the existence to a high degree of both the arbitrariness of kings and to his psycho nature as well. You know, quoting again, my my late friend Steve Pleasa, who once said to me after I had related some story involving my father, well, he certainly showed you who had the meat. And Xerxes certainly demonstrated to Pythias, foremost of all, just who had the meat. Steve's analogy, Steve's analogy I must say, would make more, more sense, greater sense, if you knew my father. Still, I think you can decipher its meaning. And we're going to conclude this memento number seven by stating that there is more evidence to come of the king of kings arbitrariness. And then we're going to kill off this particular memento series. When you can do terrible stuff to your own family, you can do very bad things to anybody. And this is what we're going to cover in our next episode, memento number nine, the arbitrariness of kings, Xerxes VI. Thanks for I am in a far off place Half of a world away And there's so much to do And there's so much to see Mother Nature's had her way There are mountains and valleys And beautiful hills Each vista something new Though my imagination's been captured, my thoughts they return to you. So can you help relieve me of this burden on my back? There's something wrong deep inside of me, or something I must lack. For I've got this worry of believing. Must admit it that I'm scared. So can you try?